I'm excited. We're going to have, I think, five weeks together or six weeks, however long you all can put up with me. And uh, we're going to walk through some, some of the major religions tonight. We're going to take a look at Islam because that seems to be the religious system that is most prevalent in the world now, in the news, and in, in people's lives. Um, so we're going to walk through that. My goal is this, okay, to try and teach these religions in an hour or an hour and a half really doesn't do them justice because there's so much to them. So my goal is this. I want you to be able to, after an hour and a half, have a conversation with somebody from the Islamic faith and be able to talk just briefly with them about what they believe and how they believe. And that's my goal. Um, I'm going to introduce you some, to some specific terminology. I'm going to talk to you about the structure of the religion. I'm going to talk to you about the heart of the religion. And um, hopefully then after that, you'll be able to have a conversation with a practicing Muslim, and they will be blown away by, by your knowledge of, of what you know about what they believe. So, so let's get started. I wanted to do this, though, before we started looking at Islam, is... Am I pushing the wrong one? There we go. I was pushing the wrong one. So I wanted to talk about general state of religion in the world. I don't know how familiar you are with, where, with the migration of Christianity, but there are more Christians south of the equator now in the world than there are north of the equator. We're a minority. And so if you look at the religious, uh, the religions of the world, the blue is where people are less interested in religions. The, the yellow, the orange, the gray, that's where from yellow to gray, that's where the, it, it goes. Yellow's the highest percentage of people that are interested in their religious beliefs. Gray is kind of middle of the road. Blue is lack of interest, essentially. And look at how in the northern hemisphere, how many countries really don't focus on their religious beliefs as a primary piece of who they are. That's really sad, you all. That used to be what was known as the Christian world. And now there's a lot of ambivalence there as it relates to religious belief. The hotbeds of religious belief are to the south. Islam, you will see a little bit later, is primarily in the Southeast Asia, Middle East area of the world. And we'll take a look at that. And you can see that's a real hotbed area for religious belief. I wanted to just give you an overview of Islam as well. So this is a statistic from the Pew Research Center, which is a major research center for religious beliefs around the world. And it's kind of an older statistic. I believe this one is from 2017 or something like that. But they, they're estimating that the growth, global growth, population growth over the next 40 years, 45 years, is going to be about 32%. So if you take that 32% and you look at the growth of Islam in the world, they're expecting a 70% growth in Islam. That's not a birth rate growth, you all. That's a conversion growth rate. Does that make sense? Look at Christianity, 34%. That's only a 2% conversion rate. Let that sink in for a second. That's only a 2% conversion rate. 
I don't know about you, but that's disturbing to me. That's disturbing to me as a follower of Christ. Christianity should be the fastest growing religion in the world. So let's take a look at Islam. There are a lot of stereotypes about Islam. There's a lot of misconceptions about Islam. I'm not here to advocate for Islam, so to speak, but I do want us to get beyond the stereotypes that are in the news. We send students around the world on semesters abroad where they study in different countries and different areas. And one of the areas they can go to to study through the, the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities is there's a group of Christians in Jordan, and they can go to Jordan, and they, they study in Jordan for a semester. All of them come back with the same, I've had five students go over, and all five of them have come back with the same perception. They said, these are the most hospitable people I have ever been around in my life. And I'm not talking about Jordanian Christians. I'm talking about Jordanian Muslims and Jordanian Christians. But they said they loved on us like we have not been loved on anywhere else in the world. And so I want us to understand that Muslims as a culture, Islam as a culture, it's a very hospitable culture when you're invited into their community. So as people, let's keep that in the back of our minds and, and in our hearts as we look at their religious beliefs then. I'm going to go back really quickly. Anybody know where the largest Islamic country by population is in the world? Anyone know? Anyone want to take a guess? Pakistan, they're second. They're, I think, third or fourth. Indonesia. Indonesia is the largest Islamic country in the world by population, and it's one of the furthest away from Saudi Arabia and Mecca. So if we look here at the population statistics, so Indonesia, 227 million Islamic followers in Indonesia. Pakistan, 204, or not thousand, million, 227 million. Pakistan, 204 million. India, 189 million. Bangladesh, 148. And then it keeps going down from there. Saudi Arabia only has 30, 31 million, 32 million believers in it, but it's a smaller country by population. The percentages would be higher in Saudi Arabia than other countries but the population numbers are lower. So words we need to know, and all of this is on the handout there. Really quickly, I, meant, I forgot to mention this. If you're looking for a little book that you can get that's really helpful in just getting a basic overview of the religions, this is one that I would highly recommend. I'll set it on the table up here, and at break you can come and look at it. Um, but it's a very helpful little book. When I teach in some churches, um, they asked the, the people to buy those books. Um, I didn't ask you to buy the books because just about everything that's contained in that book is going to be in the handout. Um, so this way you can just keep the handouts and, and uh, follow those. But some words that we need to know, some, some terminology that we need to know. The name Islam or the word Islam, that's the name of the religion. Islam is the name of the religion. And Islam means submission to God. 
or submission to Allah. Those who practice Islam are called Muslim. And the name Muslim is those who submit to Allah. So the religion is called submission to Allah or submission to God. Muslim is those who submit to God. They're the practitioners. Allah is the Arabic name for the God. It was just basically a generic name that was used in Arabic before Islam was founded. In fact, they have uh, proof of a small group of Jewish and Christian believers in Saudi Arabia that goes way back in history, and they referenced God as Allah. But the, the term Allah in Islam or in Arabic, sorry, in Arabic, just means the God. So, if you want me to nerd out on you really quickly, there's all, there are all kinds of discussions and articles and debates about, is Allah the same as Yahweh? Are the gods of Christianity and the gods of Islam the same? Well, if you go etymologically, if you just use the word study, then Allah would be very similar to Elohim in Hebrew, just the name of the word. But you can't just use the etymology of the, of the, of the name. You can't just use the word of the name. You have, to, you have to know who that name stands for. And when you start looking at Allah and you start looking at Yahweh or Elohim, you all, you are looking at two very different gods. And so, if you come across literature that tries to say that they're the same, I would caution you to be really careful with that because in practice, in attributes, in character, they're very, very different gods. And so, we have to be careful with that. The Quran is the, the primary authority of Islam. Here's a copy of the Quran. I'll pass this around if people want to look at it. Feel free to look at it. I actually have two copies of it, so I'll send it down both rows of, of tables. Interesting thing about the Quran is that the Quran ceases to be fully authoritative as soon as it's translated out of Arabic. So if you look at the, the copies that I gave you, they're in Arabic and they're in English. That's so they can be considered the Quran. If it's only in English, it is a, an interpretation of the Quran. In other words, the authority of the Quran ceases to be authoritative as soon as it's out of Arabic. So I, I fly and teach around the world. I love to teach in different countries and among different people groups. And sometimes I'll fly um, Qatar Air, I think it's called, and, or um, Turkish Air. And when you're on those planes, they have some of the most modern planes out there, and they have all kinds of entertainment with the screen in front of you, and they'll have programs to teach you Arabic through the Quran. So people will sit there for the 10, 11, 12, 13 hours that are practicing Muslims that don't know Arabic, and they'll sit there and they'll read the Quran, and they'll listen to the Quran in Arabic so that they can memorize it, because that's a really great... Uh, Thing that they can do to earn favor with Allah is to be able to read or speak Arabic 
the language of the Quran. And then finally, jihad. That's a word that, that we hear a lot in the news, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the end. Jihad literally just means struggle. So in Islamic culture, in Islamic religious beliefs, there are two jihads. There's greater jihad and lesser jihad. Greater jihad is the internal struggle that occurs in every person to be faithful to their religious beliefs. That's called greater jihad. Lesser jihad would be the more militaristic uh, actions in defense of Islam. But we'll, we'll talk more about that at the end. So that's kind of an introduction to it. So what is Islam? Islam was begun by Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad, around 610 AD. It's one of the newest religions in the world. In fact, I think it's the newest major religion in the world. Muhammad was born in 570 AD, and then he founded Islam or created Islam or brought Islam into the world in 610. It's a monotheistic religion which believes in one God, Allah. One of the fastest growing religions in the world. You saw that from the statistics that I showed at the very beginning. There are approximately, now that's an old number. I need to update that number. There are approximately about 2 billion uh, Muslims in the world today. So they're up to almost 2 billion because uh, population-wise, we're coming up upon 8 billion people in the world now, and about one-fourth of them are Muslim. Islam is essentially a religion about practices, not beliefs, okay? I think that's on your handout there. If you have a highlighter or a pen or something, underline that, because this is an absolutely critical piece of understanding Islam. It's more about what you practice than what you believe, it's more about what you practice than what you believe. In Christianity, practice and belief go hand in hand, but belief is extremely important. It's important in Islam too, but most practitioners, most Muslims, when they think about their faith, it's more about what they practice than what they believe. And then finally, Islam integrates the whole of society. It's a religious system, a political system, a legal system, an economic system, it's all, it, it, it incorporates all of their lives. Back in 2008, I don't know if you remember 2008 when we had the financial crisis around the world. The largest bank in England borrowed money from an Islamic bank while they had a loan from the Islamic bank. They were actually under... Uh, Islamic law until they paid that loan back. And it's like, well, what? But see, it's incorporated in all of their lives, every facet of their lives. So for someone to leave Islam to join another religious belief, it means you abandon everything about you. You abandon your family, you abandon your country, you abandon everything, political system, economic system, it's all integrated. So this shows you kind of the, the, the distribution of Muslims around the world. So remember I mentioned that in Southeast Asia, Middle East, that's where the largest concentration of Muslims are in the world. There are about 
almost one billion just in Asia Pacific there. That would include uh, India, Indonesia, Pakistan, all of those areas, China. Then you have the Middle East that has 317 million. We have about 3.5 million Muslims in the United States. Most of them are immigrants or children of immigrant families. So three, three main groups of Muslims, three main groups that we need to be aware of. Let me catch up with my notes here really quickly. The largest group of Muslims are called Sunnis. Sunnis. 85% approximately, 85% of Muslims are practitioners of Sunni Islam. The second largest group are called the Shiites or Shia. And they're a minority of about 15 to 20%. And then there's a really small grouping called Sufis, less than 1%. Um, Sunnis and Shia, they don't really recognize Sufism because, in, well, yeah. In Sufism, they believe you can know Allah. In Sunni Islam and Shia Islam, Allah is unknowable. You can't know Him. You can only know about Him. And so they push the, the Sufis off to the side. They say they're not real Muslims because they believe they can know Allah. I have the Ayatollah up there on the top right. And, and I, I have him there for a specific reason. There's probably more than you want to know, but I'm going to share it anyway. When Ayatollah Khomeini ruled Iran, one of the major things that he did was he tried to uh, discount, even negate, that the Holocaust occurred. He spoke very strongly against Judaism and Christianity, and he did much to try and elevate Islam. And many people that I read about and from, they thought it was a political thing. But if you understand Islam, you all, it wasn't political at all. It was religious. Because Shia, is, Shia Muslims believe that when Islam it covers the world, that their Messiah will come, the Mahdi will return. And so everything that Ayatollah Khomeini was doing was preparing the way for the coming Messiah of Islam. It was more of a religious venture than it was a political venture. And then he eventually got pushed out. So three primary branches of Islam, Sunni, Shia, Sufi. Let's talk about their scripture. So Islam recognizes four books left by prophets. And after we go through this a little bit, then we'll get into the beliefs and the, and the practices. And that's going to be the heart of what we're going to talk about. So let's go, let's go through the books. Then we'll kind of take a break, and you can ask questions and get coffee or snacks or whatever you want. And then we'll come back, and we'll jump into the beliefs and the practices, and then talk about jihad after that. And that'll kind of end our evening together. Fair enough?
All right, cool. So Islam recognizes books, and this is part of their belief system. So they believe in prophets. And so if you read books on Islamic prophets, every prophet in the Jewish Bible is considered an Islamic prophet. And prophets wrote books. And so there are books that are associated with prophets. The prophets that don't have books, they don't have books because the books were lost. And so the four primary uh, books that Islam recognizes are the Quran. That is the supreme authority, okay? Those are the words of Allah to His people. The Quran was given to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel. Now, Muhammad was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. That doesn't mean he was dumb. Some of the smartest people I know are illiterate when I go across the world. I'll never forget, about five years ago, I taught on a mountaintop in Kenya, and there were 15 ladies there because the husbands had all gone to a, a political rally. There were 15 ladies there. I taught the book of Hebrews, the first about six chapters of Hebrews to them in that afternoon. I heard my teaching preached almost verbatim, word for word, three times the next day by their husbands. They knew exactly what I taught, and they went home and taught their husbands when they came back from the political rally so they could preach it from the pulpit the next day. My point with that story is, is when I, when I talk about illiteracy, I'm not talking about people that can't learn. They just haven't learned to read and write, but they're some of the smartest people you'd ever want to meet. So Muhammad was illiterate, and he would go off to a cave. He was really disturbed because Mecca, which was his hometown, was a, was a, a crossroads for caravans that were bringing goods from the Far East into uh, Asia or uh, Europe and then down into Egypt. And so they would cross through Mecca, the, the caravan routes would. And it was also a religious center. So it was full of idols, full of different gods and goddesses, full of all kinds of not good stuff. And it bothered Muhammad. So he would go out into the desert to a cave just to get away from the chaos of Mecca. And while he was in one of those caves, he said that the angel Gabriel came to him and began to recite the Quran. And so when he came back, he would tell people who knew how to write, and they would write it down. And that's how Islam actually got its beginnings. The Quran is divided into 114 chapters, and it is the authority of Islam. Now, the Quran differs from the Bible. The Quran differs from the Bible in that the Quran is not historic. It doesn't record historic events. Our Bible's historic. I'm sure you know that. Everybody that we meet in the Bible was a person. The Quran's not necessarily the same. And so the Quran is organized by the largest chapters or the lar yeah, the largest chapters down to the smallest chapters. So it's not a sequential book that you want to read through like the Bible would be telling a, a, the story of God among His people. That's not what the Quran's about. The Quran is all about knowing about Allah and how you're supposed to practice. 
Along with the Quran, then, is the Pentateuch, or in Arabic, it's Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So they don't recognize those as fully authoritative. They recognize those as informative because they claim that the Jews and the Christians have changed the text of the Torah, the Pentateuch, to reject Islam and embrace Judaism and Christianity. But they still read them as informative. Next, you have the Psalms, but only the Psalms of David, the Davidic Psalms, because David is a prophet. And so the, the Davidic Psalms are his writings. And then you have the New Testament, the Injil, the Gospels, because those are the writings of Jesus. And so those three books for a good imam or a good teacher in Islam, they would be familiar with those three books from our Bible, those three sections of our Bible. But it's not authoritative like the Quran. The Quran is the supreme authority. Nothing can be questioned in the Quran. It's the absolute authority. Now, I share about these other three books with you because if you develop a friendship with a practicing Muslim and they start asking you about your faith, you can introduce them to the Gospels. You can introduce them to the Psalms of David. They will know about them in the sense they'll know the names, but they won't necessarily have read them. Only the teachers and the imams typically will read the, the books of the Bible. Does that make sense? But they're open to them because they have some validity in their religious system. Now, one thing that I want to share with you, though, I don't know about you, but I take lots of notes in my Bible. It's my study Bible, so I have all kinds of notes. If you're ever meeting with a Muslim and you want to show them your Bible, make sure it's a brand new clean copy because the Quran is sacred. It's a holy book, and you never desecrate it. You never desecrate it by setting it on the ground. You never desecrate it by writing in it. And so if you write in your Bible, then they, would, they believe you're desecrating your word. Does that make sense? So, so always have a clean Bible if you're going to show them anything from the Bible, not your study Bible. Islam recognizes additional sources of teaching of, of Muhammad. It's called the Hadith. The Hadith are the informal sayings and events of Muhammad's life. It's, it's things that people wrote about Muhammad. So if you can't find it in the Quran or, or you, you have a question that you want answered and you can't find it in the Quran, then you can go to the Hadith. What did, what did Muhammad say? What did Muhammad do that would inform our lives to be a good Muslim? And the Hadith, is, it's voluminous, okay? It's, it's lots of different books. And so you can find just about, in, in, in Judaism, we're going to talk about that in a week or two, they have what's called the Talmud, which is a collection of rabbinical writings and thoughts. And the, the Hadith is kind of similar to that. The, heath is the Hadith is the writings and the, the teachings of Muhammad and, and the way he practiced in his life. So not that uh, every Muslim would have a copy of the Hadith, but they would be familiar with it and they would revere it. All right, 
I'm going to stop with that for right now. What kind of questions do you have? Any questions or uh, anything that I can help clarify? Yeah. Why do they allow for the New Testament? Because they, they equate the God of the Bible as the same God that they worship. It's just as the Jews and the Christians have, have changed it against Islam. And so, one of the major people, one of the major prophets in Islam is Ishmael. And so, Islam will trace its roots through Ishmael to Abraham to Genesis. And they say, but Christians and Jews say, no, Ishmael was the son of a slave girl. Isaac is the true heir to Abraham. And they would say, Christians have changed that, or Jews have changed that, that truly it was Ishmael. So they recognize it as having validity, but not full authority. It's the Quran that has full authority. They literally believe that the Quran, the original copy of the Quran, resides in heaven with Allah. And that when Gabriel or Jabril would meet with Muhammad in the cave, he would be reading from the tablets of heaven to Muhammad, and then Muhammad would recite it to somebody that could write it down for him. Does that, does that help? Yeah. They do. Actually, Jesus is mentioned, mentioned more in the Quran than any other person. And they believe in the miracles of Jesus. And they believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. They just don't believe that Jesus gave up his life on the cross and rose again. Because no good prophet would allow that to happen. So yeah, Jesus is a big part of their of their study. Yeah. Aren't there questions about the validity of the Quran? I've heard that in Mecca, Sunnis are take the idea of Quran as Mormon as That may be. I'm not familiar with that. Um, I know that um, the Quran was actually assembled after Muhammad died. So, really quickly, might be more than you want to know, but when Muhammad died, he died at the age of 62, he left no named successor. And so, the community split after Muhammad died because the community wanted Abu Bakr, who was Muhammad's uncle. He was an older man, more settled, more uh, consistent. They wanted him to lead the community, but Muhammad's son-in-law, Ali, wanted to lead the community, but he was a young man with a hot temper and not as even keel and strong of a leader as Abu Bakr. So what happened was Ali took a group with him, and they became what are called the Shiites, and Abu Bakr, which is the largest part of the of, uh, practices, practitioners of uh, Muslims, uh, they went and followed Abu Bakr. Now, there's some significant differences between the two communities. In, in Sunni Islam, the supreme authority is the community. The imam interprets and teaches the Quran based on the, the understanding of the community or the community of imams. In Shia Islam, the imam has supreme authority. So every imam of every mosque can interpret the Quran however he sees fit. 
And so that's where you get a more radical nature in Shia Islam than you do in Sunni Islam because uh, an imam can teach basically what he believes Allah is telling him through the Quran. Whereas in Sunni Islam, it's the community that keeps everything even keel. So that's where maybe some of that could be coming from is because imams in, in uh, Sunni Islam would see the Quran differently than imams in Shia Islam would. And so there may be some, some differences there. Good questions, y'all. Yeah, Judy? So they don't believe that he died and rose from the dead. They don't believe that he's the son of God. He was just a good prophet, a good teacher. Um, they do believe in his miracles, but they don't, they don't see him as... So he's the next greatest prophet in Islam to Muhammad. Muhammad is the last and greatest prophet. Jesus is second to him. And so he's, he's mentioned in the Quran more than anyone else, but he's second. Yeah, Chuck? Okay, well, the, 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 the ones that you want to absolutely avoid until you get somebody really, 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 really interested in Christianity is don't ever mention the Trinity, because the Trinity is confusing enough for Christians. I love the Trinity. I just spent two weeks at Bethel, not, not last week, but the two weeks before last week, just unpacking the Trinity with my systematic theology students. I love the Trinity because that helps us really see God intimately. But it's a difficult concept for people to wrap their minds around. And so in Islam, they see that as heresy because that's worshiping three gods because Allah would never divide himself into three. So that's one you want to definitely avoid. What I would recommend is... If you meet a Muslim practitioner, ask them questions about their religion. From what you glean from the worksheets, from our conversations, from anything that you've read, ask them questions. Get them talking about their religion. And then once they talk to you about their religion, then they're going to ask you about yours. And once they ask you, that's the opening of the door. And then you can begin talking to them in a common ground, like Chuck mentioned, a common ground there would be talking about Jesus. So try to find common beliefs of who Jesus is from the Quran and from Scripture. And then as you walk your way through that, you can begin to guide them more to who Jesus really is as we understand from the Bible.
So they don't necessarily understand the authorship of the different books. They just know that they're, they're about Jesus. And so the primary focus in the Injil, in, in, in the New Testament, would be the Gospels because those are specifically about Jesus' life. And so those are books that talk about uh, who Jesus was, how he walked the earth, the things that he did, the things that he taught, the things that he believed. The other books of the Bible, like the Pauline epistles and the book of Acts and other, other books after Jesus would have ascended into heaven, um, those are, I don't know that they would read those that much. Yeah, it's more about Jesus. Yes. So the, the Quran was written by the community. So I'm trying, it was under Abu Bakr. He's the one that, that brought, um, brought all the, so the, the Quran was written down on pieces of wood, on pieces of paper, on pieces, just all kinds of different things. At least that's the story behind the Quran. But once they compiled it, once that community under Abu Bakr compiled it, they destroyed all of the other stuff. So there's no original sources to the Quran. It's all just their compilation of it. And similar to us, you know, we have manuscripts of, of, uh, of the books of the Bible, but we don't have the ori original writings. We have copies. But yes, and we have more historical proof of documents for the books in the Bible than any other uh, religious scripture that's out there. So, yes. Well, I mean, they would Isaac would be a prophet, but he's not he's not the truest prophet. The truer prophet would be his brother Ishmael. And the line actually should carry through there instead of through Isaac to the Jews. But they would still want to know that. They're still familiar with that. Yeah. It's just they reject it as being authoritative. It's corrupted. Good questions, you all. I'll come back, okay? Yeah. I'm speculating now. I would have to go back and research it. But Muhammad died in 632 AD, and the Quran would have been assembled about 10 to 15 years after his death. So it would go mid-7th century, somewhere in there, yeah. But I don't know the exact date. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. So in Mecca, there's a, a, the most holy site in Mecca is called the Kaaba or the cube, and that's where the rock is. So if you've ever seen pictures of the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage, there's a, there's a rectangular black cube 
in the center of Mecca, and they will walk around that. And I'll talk about that after our break. But they'll walk around the cube. That cube actually in Muhammad's day was the, the central worship center for Hubal, the moon god. But then when, he, when the Muslims came in and cleared Mecca out of all the idols and everything, then that became central to Islamic belief. And they believed that the Kaaba was actually built by Abram, Abraham and uh, Ishmael. And the stone that's in there is a meteorite that dropped from heaven, and that was God's confirmation of Abraham and Ishmael. So it's a very, very holy site for them. So I want to get into the six beliefs and the five practices of Islam. So if you look at the handout that I gave you on the very, this is my construction, by the way. I'm a visual person. I like to see things visually. It helps me to see things visually. So the six beliefs are kind of the foundation on which the five pillars stand. So the six beliefs of Islam are oneness of God. God is one. He, he has no manifestations of himself outside of who he is. He is God. So they, they believe very, 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 very strongly on that. He's both transcendent and he's imminent, which means he's outside of that which he created. He can, he can be inside that which he created, but Allah generally is transcendent. Allah is distant. If you talk to a practicing Muslim, I would be surprised if you can find a Sunni or Shiite Muslim who would say, I know God, I know Allah, because that would be heresy. Allah's unknowable. You can know about Him, but you cannot know Him. He's transcendent. So everything you do in the practice of your faith is to earn His favor so that He will let you in to know Him when you get to paradise. They also believe in angels and spirits. Muhammad received revelations from Gabriel, so they believe in angels. Angels have authority. There are four, there are four archangels in Islamic belief. There's Gabriel, there's Michael, there's Raphael, and then the angel of death. Those are considered four archangels in the Islamic belief system. There are also many evil spirits known as jinn who are part of their belief system. Now here, you all, I'm going to take a pause, okay? Remember, it's not what they believe so much as what they practice, but I want us to understand belief, okay? Because I believe, I believe belief is absolute core. I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. Please don't answer it out loud. I'll answer it. Did God create evil? Don't answer it, please. Sometimes I ask my students that, and there are too many students that will say, yeah, he did. God couldn't create evil. At the end of creation, what did God declare about that creation? It was very good. Five days it was good. On the sixth day, he declared it very good. Would God ever declare evil very good? No. He wouldn't. 
Evil is not a substance that God created. Evil is a twisting of the good that God created for selfish purposes. Now, I share that because in Islam, Allah created both good and evil. He created humans, He created angels, and He created demons. And they're both part of the system. So that's why angels and spirits, there are good spirits and bad spirits. Allah's the creator of all. So there again, remember I talked about the etymology of the name Allah versus the, the attributes of, here's a major attribute that's very different from Yahweh. Prophets, they believe in many, many prophets. Some of the prophets that they believe in are Noah, Abraham, David, Jacob, Joseph, Job, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, and we could add to that list many, 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 many more. There's not a definitive list of prophets in the Quran, but in the practice of Islam, they've incorporated many different prophets from many different religious systems as part of their uh, list of prophets. Books. So, prophets wrote books. I've talked about the books, the four primary books that are authoritative in Islam. One that's fully authoritative, three that are informative. Judgment. There will be judgment. That's a belief. Everyone will be judged. No one will escape judgment. The basis for judgment is how well you submit to Allah and His wishes. That's where the practice comes in. And then six are decrees of God. Allah's sovereign. All that He wills comes to pass. So you have to allow His decrees to have authority. Those are the beliefs, okay? And like I said, most Muslims will not be able to articulate in, in, in great fashion what they believe, but they can talk to you all day long about the five pillars, what they practice, because those are central to their belief system. So on top of these six beliefs are five pillars, and this is what we need to know, you all. This is absolutely critical in your understanding of Islam are these five beliefs, or these five practices, sorry. The first one is confession, shahada. I give you the, the English transliteration of the Arabic, because if you can talk to them about shahada, they'll look at you like, oh, you know? Really? And that will open up all kinds of conversations for you. So, in the Catholic Church, we have last rites. Before someone dies or soon after they die, the priest will give them last rites. He'll recite something over them. In Islam, the shahada, the confession, is central to everything. When a baby is born, the first words that baby hears is the shahada. The shahada is this. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is the apostle of God. There's no God but God, and Muhammad is the prophet, uh, the apostle of God. 
La, la ilaha Allah, Allah, Muhammad Rasul Allah. That's the Arabic of it. And I, did it, I just butchered it. So, but the first words a baby will hear are those. You are to recite it every day as confirmation. To become a good Muslim, to become Muslim, all you have to do is recite the confession, the shahada, in front of another practicing Muslim and mean it and you're automatically a Muslim. And once you recite that, you can't recant. So confession. Before someone to bless a marriage, the shahada. To bless someone before they move on to meet Allah, shahada. Shahada is a part of everything, you all. It is one of the most important pillars of the five is the inclusion of, of confession, of shahada. Second is salat, prayer. And you're familiar with the five prayer times throughout the day. At sunrise, the first, the first little inkling of light on the eastern skyline, time to pray. In fact, most Islamic cities will call to prayer about 15 minutes before that first glimmer, glimmer of light comes on the, on the uh, horizon. So sunrise, noon, mid-afternoon, sunset, and one hour after sunset, sunset. Those are the five prescribed times for prayer. You can pray more times than that if you want to. You're not limited to those five times, but you're obliged to those five times. You're obligated to those if you're going to keep the pillar. And it's not just a matter of rolling out a carpet and praying. There's a process you go through. There's a thing called ablution. Are you familiar with what ablution is? So any exposed skin, your face, your neck, your hands, and because oftentimes they wear sandals, your feet, you have to bathe. You must approach Allah clean. And so there's a process of ablution where you wash. If, if you've ever been to Dearborn and stayed in a hotel, they have ablution stations in the hotels there on every floor so that during times of prayer, you can go and you can wash yourself before you go to the central place for prayer. Fasting, Psalm. Fasting is tied Fasting is tied to Ramadan. Ramadan is, is the major celebration within Islam. So you fast during daylight hours in Ramadan. You can eat when it's dark, but you can't eat or drink during daylight. And it sounds like, well, that, that'd be pretty easy just to eat and drink when it's dark out. But if you're living in the Middle East where it's hot and humid and you can't drink or eat anything all day long, it's pretty rugged. And they take it very, 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 very seriously. Again, their ticket to heaven is keeping the five pillars perfectly. 
I was in Chicago about seven or eight years ago at a mosque, and I was talking to the imam, and he was explaining to me their belief systems. And so Friday is the big holy day in the mosque. That's when people will go to prayer and, and teaching. And he said, you can't see them, but Allah has placed his angels, one on each side of the doorpost of every door entering the mosque. And they're writing down the names of those who came. And Allah keeps track of that. And all of that is included in your judgment when you get to heaven. And so it's all about practice, you all. It's all about practice. Then there's almsgiving, tithing. They do tithe. The Quran commands all believers to practice regular charity, but it doesn't specify how much. They estimate that a good tithe or the minimum tithe would be, whoops, I hit the wrong button. Sorry about that. Now I've got to go all through them again. Caleb, can you help me? I'm sorry. I'm going to put this down. I fidget. But uh, the, the minimum tithe would be one-fortieth of all your profits. It's not on your income, but it's on the profits you make that particular year. So it would be based on your investments, based on all of that. So, but they're very, very generous people. The Islamic community is very generous. When they see people in need, they help. And so... Uh, they, I've not heard it called charity. It's more assistance or help, but um, they're very generous with helping people in need. And then the final one is the Hajj, pilgrimage. Now, I'm going to show my age, okay? I've got snow on the mountaintop. How many people here remember the cartoons on Saturday mornings? You'd get up early in the morning and you go, you know, because that was the only time cartoons were on, right? Do you remember Johnny Quest? What was Johnny's friend's name? Haji. You know what that name means? One who's completed the Hajj. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, an esteemed title, Haji. One who's completed the Hajj. The Hajj is the pilgrimage. Every good Muslim, once in their lifetime, must make the pilgrimage to Mecca. And it's, a, it's, a long, it's, it's like a month-long, multiple-week-long thing that you do there with millions of other people. I was flying through Istanbul on my way back from Tanzania one year, and it was right at the beginning of Hajj. You all, I've never seen so many people in an airport in my life. They were everywhere. And they were so, so excited because they were going to Hajj. It's a big thing. If you cannot go to Hajj, you can pay someone to go on Hajj for you. But that's not as good. It's okay, but it's better to go yourself. And there are professional Hajis. There are professional people who are paid every year to go on pilgrimage for others because they know the process. But Hajj is extremely important. There are seven pieces to Hajj. 
There are seven pieces to Hajj. I think it's in your worksheet there. I'll just read through it really quickly. So once you arrive in Mecca, you disrobe and you have men, you have three white triangular cloths that are given to you, and you wear those. All jewelry's off, watches off, rings off, everything off. Everyone looks the same, and that way you can't tell who the wealthy are and who the poor are. So all men dress the same. Women are in your burqas, faces covered, no ornamentation whatsoever, just basic clothing. And that's so that everyone's on an even playing field. So you go, you bathe, you change your clothes. After you're prepared with your clothing, then you go to the tawaf. The tawaf is the walking around the cube, the kaaba that we talked about. And if you've ever seen, you can go on YouTube and they actually have a virtual uh, video playing all the time of tawaf because people are always coming to Mecca to do, the, to do the pilgrimage, whether it's in pilgrimage time or not. But during pilgrimage, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people in this space trying to walk around the cube. And the first time you walk, the first tawaf, you walk around seven times. And as you walk around seven times, you're trying to inch your way towards the cube. If you can, a good hajj is when you touch the Kaaba at least once. But to get there, you have to get through hundreds of thousands of people. So if you're claustrophobic, it'd be a challenge. Okay? So you go around the tawaf, or you go around the Kaaba seven times, then you've completed that piece of the hajj. After you've done that, then you go to another area called running between Marwa and Safa. Those are two hills. If you remember in Genesis, when Abram made uh, Hagar and Ishmael leave, they went out in the desert, and then they ran out of food and water. And it said, the boy ran around. That's the Tawaf, that's, or that's the... Um, that's where he's running between the hills, okay? That's what that represents. Running between Marwa and Safa seven times symbolizes Hagar's running between the two hills after being expelled by Abraham until the angel brought her water from the well, Zamzam. Then you have the greater pilgrimage. This is where they move out of Mecca to the plain of Arafat at the foot of Mount Mercy. Mount Mercy is where the cave is located that Muhammad would have gone to and Gabriel would have given him the Quran. And so that's a very, very holy site. They go out to the plain of Arafat at the foot of Mount Mercy. And from afternoon prayer until sunset, they stand there in the presence of Allah. This is considered the spiritual high point of the Hajj. Imagine how hot it is in the blazing sun, but they'll stand out there all afternoon. And that's part of their sacrifice. After the greater pilgrimage, they make sacrifices at Mina. It's a small town between Mecca and Arafat. Here they go live in a tent city for about three days and offer animal sacrifices to Allah, which are then eaten. So it's a time of feasting and celebration. They're almost complete with the Hajj. And so they've done the hard stuff. 
Now they're, they spend three days together. And remember, again, everyone looks the same. Everyone's dressed the same. And so it's just a great time of celebration in the tents and eating goat and sheep. And everybody's included, whether you're poor or whether you're rich. After the sacrifices at Mina, they go back towards Mecca, and there are, I think it's two pillars, is that right? Um, three pillars. Three pillars that they stand up, that are stood up, that represent the devil. And you throw stones and try and hit the pillars. So it's stoning the devil. And then after you've done that, then you go back to Mecca for your final tawaf, your final walk around the Kaaba. And then once you've done all of that, you're finished. Sounds easy, sounds short, but actually it's a long period of time in between all of that because there are so many people there. So it's, it's, it's a huge journey for them. But once you complete the Hajj as a male, you earn the title Haji. And that's, that's if anyone's references Haji, that's a real honorific title. So those are the five beliefs. Now I was talking to some, some guys during the break time. And this is where it gets a little bit challenging. You can keep all five pillars perfectly through your lifetime. And Allah still has the right when you enter or when you get to the gates of heaven to look at you and say, eh, I don't really like you. Go. And He doesn't have to let you in. Everything's dependent upon Allah. There's only one golden ticket. The golden ticket to get into heaven is to be martyred for Islam. If you give your life for Islam, you're automatically in paradise. And so, suicide bombers and so forth, that's not the norm, okay? It's not something that people aspire to. So, please don't think that Muslims walk around and dream about being a suicide bomber. That's not, that's not the case, okay? But that's a reality, that if you face a situation where you can be martyred for Islam, that's your golden ticket. So that kind of lays it all out for us. Um, there's so much more that I could... Oh, I wanted to talk about jihad a little bit. Let me talk about that because I think that's something that's significantly misunderstood as it relates to Islam. So jihad. The term jihad... I don't know if I put it up here or not. I did. Look at that. So the term jihad literally means struggle. Okay? Struggle. And the word jihad does not appear in the Quran. It's something that is insinuated in the Quran, but not mentioned by name. The greater jihad is the struggle that occurs within each person. Can I get a copy of the, of the Quran? Are they close by? Let me read a passage from the Quran to you about, that talks about jihad.
61.11. And it's in Old English, so bear with me. That ye believe in Allah and His Messenger, and that ye strive your utmost in the cause of Allah with your property and your persons. That will be the best for you if ye but knew. That's describing greater jihad. That struggle to know Allah. That struggle to be faithful. That inner struggle that's in every person to do the right thing. So that in Islam is called the, the uh, greater jihad. That's the primary focus of jihad in Islamic theology. It's not suicide bombers. The press wants us to think that it's suicide bombers. But that's not a major piece of their theology. That's a radical piece of their theology. So we were talking at break about the Crusades. I don't know if you're familiar with the Crusades. There were 13 Crusades over a period of a hundred and some years. They still remember them. When you talk to a Muslim, if you get close enough to them where you start talking about Christianity, they're probably going to bring up the Crusades because they remember those. The memory is long because a lot of... Anyway, I'll leave it at that. So they would view us as violent because of the Crusades, just as much as we would view them as violent because of suicide bombers. Lesser jihad, then, is the military struggle. And lesser jihad basically says this. You cannot fight for Islam unless Islam is being mistreated or denied. You cannot fight for Islam unless Islam is being mistreated, misrepresented, or denied. And so, it's, it's, very, it's typically a very narrow uh, interpretation of a cause for lesser jihad. We've seen more of it in our lifetime than what has been in a lot of previous history. Another, com just I'll, I'll end with this then. Uh, another conversation piece that we had at break here at the table was um, asking about the spread of Islam, why Islam is growing so rapidly and other religions aren't. Um, I have a couple of thoughts on that, and hopefully you won't throw things at me, okay? A draw for Islam, though, I mean, think about it, you all. We like to think we're free, we like to think we're independent, but we also like clear things that we're supposed to do, clear things that we're supposed to abide by. And in Islam, they don't have to think as much about what they believe, they just have to keep the rules, they have to do the right things. And it's easy to kind of judge in that sense, but in Christian church, don't we do that a lot as well? And so Islam's growing because people want stability. People want something that they can latch onto that will lead them and they don't have to question it. And Islam, the five pillars, provides that. 
and it permeates their whole lives. Spiritual, financial, relational, everything. We worship a God who presents Himself to us and then we choose, are we going to follow Him or not? Are we going to build this relationship together or not? And, and God's constantly presenting Himself to us that we might know Him. And there's a big difference, you all. In Islam, you know about Allah, you don't know Him. In Christianity, hopefully we move beyond knowing about God to actually knowing Him. You can know about God just by keeping the rules, but you can't know Him until you surrender. Does that make sense? And so Islam, there's not necessarily surrender. You just keep the rules. It's safe. It's consistent. It's boom. And it draws people. It draws people. And if we can just live our lives in a way that consistently shows people the love of God, you all, it will draw people like nobody's business. But we have to love each other instead of eating each other. And I'm not saying that that's what you do, but oftentimes in Christianity, when somebody's down, you all, instead of loving them well where they are, we eat them, we chew on them. Let's love each other well. Let's live faith consistently that draws people to us. And the numbers for Christianity won't be 2% over birth rate. They'll be 38% over birth rate too, or 40% or 50% or 60%. And Christianity will grow far beyond anything else. You all, God is moving. Let me ask you a question. Where's Christianity growing fastest in the world based on population numbers? What country? Nope. Percentage of population, the fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran. Did you know that? And it's because God is reaching out to people. Dreams and visions are huge in the lives of Muslims. When I was in Russia, it was the last week my wife and son and I were in Russia, 2007. We'd already said goodbye to our home church, which Russia is a very relational culture. And so saying goodbye to them was a week-long process. It wasn't just going to the last service and saying goodbye. And so we'd already said goodbye to our home church, and we didn't want to have to go through that process again because we were leaving the next day. So we went to a friend of ours' church. He was the president of the university that, I, that we worked at, and he had a church at the university. And at the end of their service, it was a congregation of about 100 people. At the end of the service, they said, gather in groups of 10, 15, 20, and pray together. So we gathered together in a group. We had someone praying in German. We had somebody playing, praying in Ukrainian. We had many people praying in Russian. My wife and I decided to pray in English to add another language to it. And there was somebody praying in Farsi. And at the end of the service, I went up to him, and he didn't speak English, but he spoke Russian, and I was talking to him. I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Azerbaijan. I said, what are you doing in Russia? He said, I had to come here 
to flee for my life. He said, my father is the leading imam for one half of Azerbaijan. And he said, Jesus appeared to me in three dreams. He said, the first dream, Jesus appeared to me and he introduced himself to me. The second dream, Jesus came and he invited me to be his and I chose to follow him. The third dream, he said, I was in the dream and Satan was there and the demons were entering my brothers and my father, but they couldn't touch me because Jesus was defending me. And he said, after that dream, I told my father and my brothers about Jesus. And they looked at me and they said, you have 24 hours or you're dead. Go. And here's a young man with the equivalent of a PhD in engineering, digging ditches in Russia because he's there illegally and that's all he can do. But he's a follower of Jesus. God loves the Muslims. And he's reaching out in every way possible to introduce himself to them. And the church in, we don't hear about it in the news, but the church in the Islamic world is really growing right now. But there's also intense persecution. So I just wanted to end with that because I want there to be hope at the end. And the hope is, is that God's doing amazing work. We may never get a chance to go to an Islamic country to share our faith, but God's bringing them to us. And all we have to do is learn how to love them well, to speak in ways that they understand, and introduce them to Jesus, and lives will be changed. Questions? Yes. Mm -hmm. So the, the cube, the Kaaba, is the rectangular, uh, it's kind of like a building in a sense. They have it draped with a curtain. It's, it's very, very beautiful the way they have it decorated up. But that is supposedly a, a structure that is, is Ishmael and Abraham built. And the only thing that's housed in there that anyone's aware of is there's a meteorite there that fell from heaven that they believe confirmed Abraham and Ishmael as uh, the prophets through whom Allah was going to bring Islam into the world. And so it's, it is the most holy site. Yeah. Yes. They go through all of it, yeah. Yeah, women participate in all of it. It's just... So the symbolism is, is that Islam is the righteous way and, and Satan the devil, anything evil is outside of Islam and so they're they're pushing that evil away. Anything outside of Islam that's, that's, that's viewed as evil should be stoned, yeah. Yeah. Keeping in mind the prophets, the angels, and the, and the 
spirits. So Allah created all of that, but that doesn't mean that Allah necessarily wants the evil in, in Islam. That's to push it away. Yeah. Cool. Great questions, you all. Yeah, Dan? If, if I had to guess distance, and it's, it's purely speculation, so if I remember correctly, Mecca would be just a little bit northeast of Jerusalem, um, but it would, it would be at least a thousand miles, if not more. So the second most holy place in Islam is Jerusalem. Yes, yes. So... Islam believes that Muhammad was taken into heaven to meet Allah and that in his sleep he was brought to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem, from the Temple Mount, is where he went up into heaven to experience paradise with Allah and come back down to give that truth to, to Muslims. And so that's why it's the second most holy site. So they won't give that up. They won't give that up. Yep. They were going to kill him. Yes. Yes. Yeah, when you leave Islam, that's a death sentence. So we had a young lady that graduated from our university in St. Petersburg who... Um, grew up just on the, the corner of Afghanistan. And we couldn't publish anything about her. We couldn't put pictures. We couldn't put her in the graduation program. We couldn't put anything about her because they were still hunting for her. And that was 15, 20 years after she left Islam as a little girl. She was in her 30s when she graduated university. So they wouldn't necessarily view Christians as being against them unless you're out proselytizing. If you're trying to proselytize among Muslims to bring them to Christianity, then you're an enemy of Islam. That makes sense. Pardon? Yes, because the United States is synonymous in their minds with Christianity. And if you look at, and I'm not advocating for or against, but if you look at the, at the military policies and the social policies of our government overseas, and that being synonymous with Christianity, they would see that as offensive in their countries.
Yeah. Um, as far as faith is concerned, there's not a whole lot more that, I mean, if you, I wouldn't get into Jesus' death and resurrection right away. I would establish a commonality in an understanding of who Jesus is and how he lived his life on earth. Um, and then later I would, I, I'm not saying hide it, but I'm saying that that's probably not the first topic about Jesus that you're going to want to talk to somebody, a practicing Muslim about. So, um, so just be careful in that conversation you have with them. Also, please don't ever serve pork. Um, that's extremely offensive to them. They don't eat pork and no alcohol. So anything related to pork, alcohol, or some of the lifestyle things that would be considered normal in, in much of the United States, um, those are some things that you would need to be careful of. But you can talk about Jesus. In fact, I would encourage you to talk about Jesus when you're building that relationship. Just avoid the, the, um, the whole ideas of Jesus being God and on the cross and the grave. You'll get there. We have to get there, okay? I'm not saying don't get there, but that's not the first conversation I would have with them. Establish that relationship. Establish that trust with them and live your faith openly in front of them. So, story. We have a, a young couple from our church, Brenneman and Goshen, who are... Uh, living and ministering in an Islamic country. I won't tell you where because I can't do that publicly. But during COVID, in that particular country, they shut everything down for a week. Now, remember I told you that, that they're super, super um, hus hospitable. So here's this young American couple living in an apartment right across the hallway from this family and they have a huge apartment. The, the family does, not the couple. And they were going to be locked down for a week. No going outside, literally not leaving the apartment building. So the couple comes over, and grandma and grandpa are staying with them because the family gets together for COVID because they know they're going to have a week together. And then they, they invite this couple over. They're like, come live with us for a week. So they did. During that week, this young couple, the the they started sharing stories from the Bible, just stories, because they love storytelling. So they started telling stories from the Bible, and they had a whole week, 24 hours a day, all the meals, all the downtime. During that time, he's sharing stories of Jesus from the Old Testament and New Testament. At the end of that week, the grandfather came up to him and he said, I'm not going to say his name. I'll just call him young man. He said, young man, I want you to know that I am now a man with two hearts. I have a heart for Jesus, and I have an Islamic heart. He continued the relationship with Grandpa. They came home last year, and they never told the story. They never, they never continued on Grandpa. And I walked up to him after service. I was like, young man, what happened to Grandpa, the man with the two hearts? Tears just started flowing out of his eyes. He goes, he came to me just before we left to come back. He said, I'm a man of one heart, and it belongs to Jesus. Just through telling stories, 
and living their faith consistently. I don't know anyone who's been argued into heaven, but I know a lot of people have been loved into heaven. And if you love well and live truth, God will use you in the lives of the people around you. I guarantee it. Great questions, you all. Anything else? Yeah. I would be respectful. In other words, <laughs> if I were a lady, um, I would wear, what are they called, capris that come down and cover the knee. Um, I, I don't know that I would go in wearing shorts because they won't be wearing shorts. I would have at least a, a, a sleeve on my, on my blouse and not really low cut. Um, and that's just showing them respect. They wouldn't expect that of you, but it's showing them respect because that's the way they would be dressed. Um, and different countries have different, different rules on that. But yeah, the, the more you can be covered and be respectful, the more they will be open and receptive, I believe. So, yeah. You all are amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. It's not that far. Yeah, so if you run it seven times, it's 2.2 miles. No. <laughs> and they don't run it. You know, it's all indoors now. They have it all covered now. So you just walk this hallway, and it's between the two, yeah. It is. It is. At least I'm told it is. I've never been there, but I'm told it is, yeah. <laughs> only on the plain of Arafat. That's where they really stand out in the sun. There's, that's right out in the elements. Yeah. So, yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. I would be... If it's somebody you work with and you already have that established, then I think that would be okay. Uh, but for a lady to just go up and walk to a man that walk up to a man that you don't know, that would kind of be seen as less than appropriate. And it's not just it's not just Islam. We have a an Orthodox Jewish community in South Bend, and I would love to take my students to visit the synagogue there. But out of respect to the men, I don't because it's, it's very offensive for an Orthodox Jewish man to speak to a woman that he's not related to. So, so I take him to the other, to the conservative synagogue or to the uh, Reformed temple because they have more lax rules as it relates to that. So I'm glad you brought up that point. That's, that's, that's a good point of being respectful. I'm, I'm grateful to um, Dr. Evie. Um, I had a couple, th a couple thoughts. One, I had a sneaking suspicion that with this group, 
they might want to push a little bit farther than our hour and a half time cap. <laughs> uh, I, I thought that might be the case. Uh, that's good. Um, thank you for everything that oh, you my uh, shared tonight, being able to engage. I'm sure there are many other questions that people will try to capture your attention here um, as we go. Um, what's I think on my heart the most is just thankful for a Savior who came and did all Amen. the work for me. That's that's what has been resonating through through all of this. But um, just can we pray together? Uh, we'll close our time um, and then uh, we'll, we'll look forward to next week as a maybe a quick preview. What maybe not preview preview, but what are you planning on bringing? What's I what's thought next we would week? do Judaism next Judaism. week. Is that okay? okay? Yeah, because that's one that's close to the Christian faith and kind of understanding the similarities and differences and. Okay, <clears throat> let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, again, we, uh, we are grateful and humbled to call you Savior and Lord. Um, we praise you for who you are, how you have revealed yourself to us uh, in your word. Lord, we thank you for your death and your resurrection, um, the, the proof that we have um, of what you have accomplished and what you came to accomplish here uh, out of your love uh, for us. Thank you for being a personal God that we can know. Uh, thank you for accomplishing what we couldn't accomplish um, and, and offering yourself uh, to us. Uh, you said, I'll come die for you. And Lord, uh, we, are, we are humbled uh, by that. Um, and we love you. We thank you for Dr. Kent. Um, he came and shared with us tonight. I ask that you would just bless him, uh, continue to uh, bless his ministry and his teaching, um, both within his uh, local church, uh, but then also um, within Bethel as well, that um, you would continue to use him there to refine students, to edify them, to grow them, um, to continually point them towards uh, the one true God, and that is you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So thank, can we thank you, Dr. Kent, uh, for coming tonight? Awesome. We'll be here next week, uh, same time at 530. And if you've got questions, I'm sure that you'll be open to answering some of them.